Good morning, guys. Welcome to our first session here uh, for the Men's Retreats 2017. I'm excited for our time together today. Uh, the, the theme for our Men's Retreat is Becoming a Man of God in the Church. Our first session here today is titled Kingdom of Priests, Proclaiming the, pra- the Praises of God Together in Community. If you don't have your Bibles already open, uh, please open them to 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through 10. You know, If you have a smartphone you, and have the Bible app on there, like, if you don't have a Bible, you can open it to, there to uh, 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through 10. Uh, Before we get started, let's Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this time that you've given to us to open your word. Consider what it says. Lord, as, as we've sung, Lord, you've paid it all in our place for our sin. Lord, we love you. And we pray for this time. Pray, Lord, that you would minister, use your word, Lord, in the lives of, of these men to, to minister to them through your spirit. Open our eyes that we might see great and wonderful things from your word and grow in it and learn to love you and one another in community with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. If you don't already have your Bible open, go ahead and open it. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I want you to think back to a time in your life when you experienced genuine community. And what was that time like? How did it shape you and mold you as a person? You see, as Christians, we are we're formally dead in our trespasses and sins, and, and God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We who were enemies of God are now friends of God. As non-Christians, we were under the domain and power of darkness. As Christians, we've been transferred into a new kingdom under a new king, the Lord Jesus. And as a result, we are his and he is ours. In Colossians 1, 13 through 14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, what Peter wants to do is he wants to write this epistle to people who have had their sins forgiven. They have been transferred from the domain of darkness under the, the, the kingdom of Satan, and, and God has transferred them through Christ into a new kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Whether you, you might not know this or not, but as a Christian, you are a member of this community. God has taken your heart of stone, and he's replaced it with a new heart, with new desires and new affections for himself. And he has placed you in his kingdom, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. As such, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God both now in the present and always in the future. And what Peter is doing here is he's writing to people who are facing an intense suffering and persecution. He's writing to sojourners like you and I. He writes to encourage, to instruct them in how to stand fast in the midst of all they are experiencing. And to this end, in the first few verses in chapter 1, he greets them. And then he teaches them, how they've been born again to a new and a living hope in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. And after this, he tells them in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25, how because they've had their hearts of stone replaced with a new heart, with new desires and new affections for Jesus Christ, they are to live by the mandates of God's kingdom. And in, in chapter 2, he writes to them to live consistent godly lives, in the, both in the community and outside of it. And he elaborates on this theme in chapter 3, starting with the home and then moving into the public square. You see, this morning we are going to consider how we have been called out of the kingdom of darkness 
as Christian and into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. We are members of this new community. We have a new mission and a new purpose because of the gospel. And I have a specific goal in mind with this message and, and for this weekend. And my overarching goal is to help you become a man of God in the church. You see, our men's ministry exists to help you become a man of God in private, before God, in the home, in the church, and in public. And my goal this weekend is, is to help you become a certain type of man. You see, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's, not, it's a marathon. You see, you're not ever going to become this kind of man just by driving up here two and a half hours and the two and a half hours back. You're not ever going to become this type of man by driving through a McDonald's. This is the work of a lifetime of God's grace. But not only do we want you to become a certain type of man, we want you to become that man consistently. And we want you to get involved in the work of building up God's people in this church. See, this is going to take time. It's going to take a heap of God's grace. It's going to take a lot of hard work with God's help on your part for this to happen. But trust me, it's worth it. It is. And no matter where you are, and I know that that's all over the map here. We're all at different stages in our spiritual growth and development. I encourage you to prepare yourself. I promise that you're going to be challenged. You and I will both be challenged. Prayerfully, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction. That's what I'm praying for. And we're going to already, we've already had a wonderful time of fellowship and enjoying one another. And this morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Tonight, we're going to consider how the gospel calls us to be a certain type of man and how to become that man over time from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Sunday morning, we're going to look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, where he charges men with five powerful imperatives. We're going to have a passionate call to be a gospel man. We're going to talk about how to be, get involved in our church community and begin investing in others. If you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through 10. And here's what our text this morning says. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priest to the holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what should stand out in this passage is that it's literally pregnant with gospel metaphor. Peter speaks in the present tense here, and he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priest to the holy nation, a people for his own possession, in verse 9. And he says in verse 10, you are God's people and now have received mercy. And what's important to note here is that what Peter does is, is not grounds his explanation of what we do. We don't deserve any of what God has given to us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, along with the benefits therein. And Peter, knowing this, says in verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And also, it's because of this in verse 9 that he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what's amazing about this passage is Peter, he writes... He uses imagery to address his hearers, and that imagery is from the Old Testament. And the Jews would have been familiar with this. In fact, this is why we need to understand the context, the, the background of our passage. And specifically, he quotes from Isaiah 43, 20-21. He says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, 
to give drink to my chosen people, the people I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. You see, Peter views Christians as the body of Christ, the church. And the Jews also had a priesthood made up of men who served the Lord in the temple. In fact, he speaks about this in verse 9 of our passage. He speaks of a holy priesthood, a phrase which is meaningful in light of the command to be holy in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. which says, But as he who called you is holy, you shall also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And the descriptive adjective royal adds the dimension of a king and a kingdom. You see, in the kingdom of priests, there is a king. In fact, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is both priest and king. Zechariah 6.13 says, Is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between both. And whereas Zechariah prophetically portrays the Messiah as a royal priest, Peter reveals that believers are a royal priesthood. With the phrase, a holy nation, Peter again references the Old Testament. In fact, he's borrowing from Exodus 19, verse 6, which says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to my people, the people of Israel. And Peter here resorts to using national and political terminology, but he wants them to understand these words in a non-political manner. For this reason, he qualifies the word nation with the adjective holy. You see, we are citizens of the United States, and as such, we are to obey the laws of the land, obey the rules and the regulations, in order to strive for the well-being of society. Citizens of a holy nation have common characteristics through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter portrays God's people as a holy nation, which means they are citizens that have been set apart for service to God. And with the phrase, a people for his own possession, Peter goes out, he zooms out to redemptive history and and points out how God has claimed a people for his own possession. In fact, the, the book of Revelation depicts this. It says that God has called out a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and people. They are a myriad upon myriads of people. They are his precious possession. They were bought with a precious blood of Christ, the infinite treasure of Christ, and through the resurrection. And Peter here points to the task of God's special people as a skilled pastor. He addresses them personally when he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, in every way, in, in everywhere, God's people should vocally tell others of the grace that they have received. They should tell other people of the grace of God, of the holiness of God, of the mercy of God, of the justice of God, and on and on and on. By their conduct, they must testify that they are children of the light, that they are citizens of this new kingdom. You see, what Peter is emphasizing is that they have been called out of darkness into the light. They have been called out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 2 says, says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And once again, Peter's using, on, using the Old Testament imagery. In fact, he alludes to the prophecy of Hosea, where the Lord addressed the prophet when Gomer gave birth to her second son. Hosea 1.9 says, And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And the second 
part of verse 10 is an allusion to Hosea's prophecy. Gomer gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord tells him in Hosea 1.6, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Now let's go back to 1 Peter 2.10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is a reference to the past of these recipients. They were Jews and Gentiles who, through the preaching of God's word, have been converted. They have been born again. God saved them through the redemptive work of the Son, Jesus Christ. And now these same persons are the body of believers, the people of God. They are God's special people whom Peter designates as those belonging to God. Peter explains, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the Greek wording here, the Koine in Biblical Greek, indicates that they had been living without God for an extended period of time. They had tried to receive mercy, but they had failed. And in every way, the non-Christian is seeking to find mercy. They are seeking drink to be satisfied with, to satisfy the longing of their soul. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says that God has set eternity on our hearts. The human heart cannot but seek after meaning, identity, value, and worth, but they do it outside of God. And so they pursue these things to find meaning and identity and value and worth. For the Christian, our meaning and identity and value and worth is to be in Christ. And Peter contrasts the the past of these recipients with who they are now. Now you have received mercy. That is, they have received the remission of their sins and the forgiveness of sin. And now I want to turn to, I spent a long time thinking about how to apply this passage. So I want to zoom out. I want us to look at the grand story, the redemptive story, the scarlet thread it's been called, of the Bible. And we start by going back to the beginning of the Bible. In the garden, Adam was called to take dominion over creation, to procreate with Eve, and to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was called in the garden to be a king priest. That is, he was called to take dominion over the garden and to lead his family Eve. And as it originally was before the fall, Adam did well. But after the fall, we know that the whole human race plummeted into sin. And they became sinners by nature and by choice. And this means, to be clear, that we not only make bad choices and decisions, but we sin because sin is hardwired into our DNA. It is part of who we are. It defines who we are as people. It's fundamental to our entire nature as human beings. But we know Christ was virgin born, and he came to live a perfectly sinless life. He died in our place, and for our sin was buried and rose again. And not only that, but he, but he also is an ascended Lord, he served, where he serves now as our high priest, our mediator, our intercession, our advocate. And he is also our soon returning king. You see, through the death of Christ, we have had our sins transferred to Christ. And in this process, the righteousness of Christ was transferred to our account. We don't deserve this free gift. And yet God does it anyway. He offers us to us anyway of his grace. In fact, guess what? Theologians have a fancy word for this. It's called imputation. Through imputation, we are holy Christ and he is holy ours. That is, we have been united to Christ by faith in Jesus Christ for the purpose of communion with Christ. We'll come back to this in just a second. You see, we have new life in Christ our King. Pastor Greg, he's, he's wonderfully preached on this many times, what I'm about to describe. 
As Christians, we are doubly owned by God by virtue of the fact that he's our creator. He created us in his image and in his likeness. And second, we are doubly owned because Jesus Christ is our Lord, King, Savior, and God. You see, Adam failed in his kingly duties in the garden. Adam was commanded to not eat from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam failed in this task. He failed miserably. He was instructed, commanded to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't know if, if he instructed his wife, but the fact remains, he didn't instruct his wife. He didn't warn his wife enough about the dangers of eating of this tree. See, as men, it's easy for us to blame, to shift blame from ourselves, for our own failures to others. You know, in the first few years of my marriage, this is what I did. You know, it wasn't until one day when the Lord showed me, I was in Bible college at this time, so I was reading the Bible, and God convicted me. And I went over, went from my office, the 10 steps, where Sarah, my, Sarah, my beautiful wife and sweetheart, was laying on the bed. I'm sorry. And let me just say, that apology was, was good. It was a good start. But as men, we have to be specific with our wives. Our wives want us to be specific with them about how we've hurt them, about what we've done. Over time, we'll, we'll, we'll get better at that. We'll have to, as Pastor Mike says, eat humble pie. You see, the problem that I'm describing here is blame shifting. It's easy to point the finger at other people. It's harder to own up to our own failing. In John Flavel, which by the way, last year we had uh, Brian, Dr. Brian Cosby. He's my good friend. John, uh, Brian is one of the foremost scholars on John Flavel. And for those of you that don't know, in his day, John Flavel was considered one of the greatest Puritans. He was thought of in the same category as John, men like John Owen. And he said this. And by the way, he was also a pastor. He said, Flavel said, Brethren, it's easier to declaim against a thousand sins of others than to mortify one sin in ourselves. And what he's saying, guys, is this. It's easier to point the finger at other people. It's harder to point the finger at ourselves. So that's what he's trying to say. And with the word, the word mortify, by the way, it means to put to death. It means to kill our sin. I like to call it slaughtering our sin. And the reason that we're able to mortify our sin is because the, in, in Colossians chapter 3, we're told to put off the flesh the old man, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to kill our sin because we've been given a new identity, a new meaning and value and worth. We are all affected by the fall. Even as Christians, we're both saints and sinners. In fact, the famous Protestant theologian, Martin Luther, and by the way, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. He had a phrase for this. Imagine that theologian having a fancy phrase. It's in Latin. It's called simul justice al pictor, at the same time saint and sinner. So as Christians, we are both saint and sinners. We have been given new life, and yet we still sin. And we call this indwelling sin. And the point there is that Jesus, we're not like Jesus in the fullest sense of the word. Instead, we're growing into our new identity in Jesus Christ by continually repenting of our sin and growing in Christ's likeness. Charles Spurgeon is a famous Baptist preacher. In fact, he's called the Prince of Preachers. And he has a very famous phrase. You might have heard of it. It goes like this. I have great need for Christ. I have great Christ for our need. Indeed, indeed, we have a great need of Christ. First John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the struggle here is real. Our need is great. Which one of us here is, is sufficient and adequate for these 
things? And the answer is none of us, not one of us. And yet we have one in Jesus Christ who was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. In fact, we see this in Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, and again in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Let me read those to you, starting with Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy to find grace to find help in time of need. You see, that means that you and I, and by the way, this isn't just for me, this isn't just for you, this is that you and I, we have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for our need. We have a Savior who not only understands that, what we're going through, He knows it all, He sees it all, and He cares. Nothing in the whole universe is beyond His gaze. (coughs) And you might be wondering, guess what, right now, what does this have to do with me? And the thing is, guys, this has everything to do with you and I. Every single one of us, is facing temptations every day. Every single one of us has things that we're going through. Every single one of us has issues. We are as bad as it gets, and yet we are as fully loved and fully accepted by God. We are the beloved of God. That's what Paul says. In fact, what's amazing to me is when you understand what Paul is doing in in the book of Romans and how he gets to Romans 8.1, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In the first three chapters, he talks about how our sin, we're totally as bad as it gets. Absolutely. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he uses, he talks about a justification, which that relates to, it's a legal forensic word. It relates to the court of law. It has to do with somebody who is guilty, absolutely guilty. They are declared guilty. They are sentenced to time in jail. And yet, what's amazing is, is that the word that Paul uses to talk about justification in in chapters 4 and 5 of Romans, it refers to how we've been declared legally not guilty. Legally not guilty. We who deserve hell and damnation have been given mercy, declared not guilty by God. In chapter 7, he talks about our indwelling sin, and then he comes to this verse in Romans 8.1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and therefore builds on what he's already said. And then he says, there's no condemnation. Are you kidding me? We deserve condemnation. We do not deserve mercy. And yet God gives us mercy. He declares us not guilty. And by the way, when he, he talks about in Christ, when you see that word, what he's talking about, and you'll see it throughout his letters, he's talking about our union with Christ. That means that we have been united to Christ by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for the purpose of communion with Christ. And this is, by the way, why we can feast on the grace of God, why we can enjoy the word, why we pray, why we get to spend time with God. Through Adam, we are sinners by nature and by choice. In Christ, we are as loved and as accepted by God as we can get. You are beloved. Perhaps in your own walk with God today, you aren't doing well, my friend. And perhaps in your own marriage with your wife, you aren't doing very well. Or maybe you're single and you're not doing very well in your singleness. Perhaps in your struggle against temptation, you're not 
doing well at all. Or perhaps you face significant life issues. Can I encourage you for a minute, my friend? Look to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who will never let you down. In fact, in Hebrews 13, it says that our God is faithful. And why is he faithful? Because his faithfulness is tied to his character. And and God's character is perfect and just, the psalm perfect and just and holy and good. He is a rock of refuge and help, a very present help in time of need, the Psalms say. Jesus is the only one who will never, ever let you down. And I hope you're ready for what I call a gospel bomb. A gospel bomb. No matter how many times you've sinned, and no matter how you've sinned, it's still not enough for Jesus Christ to not want you back. And we see this, I'm not just making this up, by the way, we see this in The story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. We see a picture of a God who meets us where we are, but doesn't leave us where we are. We see a father who has given his inheritance to his youngest son. We see the jealous elder brother who wants to do right, but isn't loving. You see the story of the prodigal son is the story of our lives. And from God's vantage point, the story of the prodigal son is the story of redemption. The father sent the son to die for people who are stuck in the muck and mire of their sin. And in the father reaching out to the son, we see the extravagance of God's grace. And by the way, the father running to the son in that story is a major, major cultural no-no. He is the leader of that community. And yet he does so anyway, and he doesn't care what other people think. Today, our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, he runs after the lost sheep. In fact, John 10 tells us that he leaves the 99 and he goes and pursues that one lost sheep. You might not be a Christian here today, but God, you need to understand, he brought you here for a reason and he desires nothing more than this for you to stop being stuck in your sins. Instead, he desires to give you new life through Christ. Today, you can become a Christian by God's grace and you can become a member of the family of God. In fact, if that's you today, there are plenty of people here who would love to talk to you about this, myself included. But, you're, but perhaps today you're already a Christian. And I want to encourage you very briefly here. Perhaps you're even part of our church community, and that's great, but you're not connected to the life and the well-being to the ministry of our church. And I'd like to point out that you, who are once an enemy of God, have now received mercy. And the fact is that the fact that you are a recipient of God's grace, it should compel you to love and to care for your own family, and also the family of God. And I want to encourage you gently here this weekend. I want to challenge you to stop sitting idly by and just consuming sermons. What's, that's essential for your own spiritual growth and development, to sit under the preaching of God's Word. But it's also absolutely essential for your spiritual growth. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You see, we have 270-plus men here at our church. There are about 20, a little over 20 of you here. And I want to challenge you to begin praying for the men of our church. I want to challenge you to consider how you are being part. Many of you are doing a great job. But we can all spur each other on more, more to love and to good deeds. We have received mercy from God. We have been called to this community. We are a kingdom of priests, men who are seeking by God's grace to love him, to know him. And that's great. But let me challenge you. We desperately need you. We have work to do. And it's great to come up here and be encouraged by great fellowship and a time of teaching in the Word. And my aim this weekend is to help you to see that being a part of the church community is more than just sitting 
by the wayside. It's more than just sitting idly by and letting whatever happened happen. As men, we're called to lead in the church and in the home. We're called to lead in the home and in the church. This is not optional. If we fail in this task, we can excuse it all we like, but the fact of it still remains. And I know it can be hard. In fact, let me tell you something. It's been hard for me to sacrifice. In fact, I've asked, been asked by a number of publications. I, I write, used to write for a number of publications, and I've had to give that up. And I, what's even interesting here is my wife, even just now, recently, she asked me, I asked her, can I write for a number of publications again? And she said, no, and that's, and that's hard. It's hard for me. You see, I've done this because I believe that loving God entails loving our neighbor. And guess what, guys? Our neighbor is our wife. And if you're a member of our church, it's not enough just to come to the membership meetings, although we'd love to see you. It's not enough for you just to come on Sunday, although we do want you to come. It's time to get involved. Get in a growth group, please. Go to one of the men's Bible studies. Ken Kenoy leads the one Wednesday morning. I've, I've been hearing great things. They're going through the epistle of Hebrews. I lead the one uh, through the gospel of John. Guess what? If you don't like this, this teaching then you probably aren't going to like the, the, the men's study. And by the way, I don't want to hear about it, so please don't tell me. If you don't like them, you can tell Brian. You can let us know. We'd love to start another one. See, the men's ministry has a big, big-time need for men of God to step up to help plan our events. There's a need. You know, my wife does worship some weeks. She plays the keyboard, and she also does audiovisuals. And during those weeks, what I'm doing is I'm walking around the church. I'm greeting people, talking to them. We have a lot of new people that are coming into our church. And this is one thing that you can do right now, even next Sunday. Make people feel at home. It's a significant ministry. This is something tangibly that you yourself can do. Over 50 times in the New Testament, we've been told to one another, each other, and that's because of the grace that we have received. In fact, these 50 one another passages, they outline our responsibilities towards one another. They do. It's because of grace that we're called to them. And as men, we're called to one another. So wherever you are in your spiritual growth today and development, And I know that's all over the place with you. Let me plead with you. Please look to Christ. He is enough for you. He's all you need. You are as loved and as accepted by God as you can possibly be. You see, we are a kingdom of priests called by God to proclaim His praises together in community for His glory. We have need of you guys. We really, we really do. We do. We need you here. We need you to stop. If you come here today and you're hurting and you're struggling, would you please stop with the facade? Would you, would you drop the facade? Drop the act? If you're really hurting, let me tell you. When I first came to this church, I was hurting and struggling. And God used men like Pastor Mike and Pastor Greg to help me address the hurt in my heart. And he gave me, he replaced that hurt with a heart of love for those brothers and sisters who hurt me. And he's given me a love for the people of this church. And if you're hurting today, please, this weekend. Don't leave this weekend without sharing with somebody about what's going on with you. And would you pray with me now, please, as we wrap this up. Father, we we thank you so much for the mercy and the grace that you have granted to us, given to us as a free gift. We who are dead in our trespasses and sins, Lord, you have made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we are saved. We who are dead in our trespasses and sins, You have made us alive together with you. You are our high priest, our intercessor, our mediator, our advocate before the Father. And Lord, we we love you. We thank you so much for calling us out of darkness. We who don't deserve this mercy, don't deserve this grace, you give it to us now through Christ. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you. Even now, Lord, you are pleading the merits of your infinite, unending treasure of your blood before the Father on our behalf as our advocate and our intercessor. You are pleading that the treasure of your trove of your blood. And Lord, we love you. We thank you for your ongoing work. And Lord, help us as men. Help us this weekend to see our great need of you and our great need of your grace through your spirit and of one another. We thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.